out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the senseless things because I very recently caught up with Ben Hardin to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So anyway, this is the interview. And um, I don't normally tell you about this, but I do sometimes, I suppose. Yes, the interesting thing is we started the conversation with the where do you live, where do you live. It's fascinating, I know. Then it turned out that um, his mum lives in the same village as mine. We were slightly boggled by that. It threw me slightly. It's a small village in Suffolk. What are the chances? Anyway, after uh, coping with that surprise and shock, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the very early years. The early years, Ben. Tell us more. Tell us now. My homeland. My, well, um, I was born in 65, so I'm, I'm a slightly younger than you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, um, but, yeah, no, I was, I was uh, born in um, Stoke-on-Trent. Right. Um, lived and grew up for the first 12 years of my life in uh, Newcastle under Lyme. Um, this was all really because my parents were at Keele University um, in the 60s. Um, but we moved down to London uh, when I was 12. Um, and I lost my pottery's accent in about a week um, because, uh, because obviously I had the piss ripped out of me mercilessly by my fellow junior school uh, yes. pupils they're cruel yeah so but but no so so really for me growing up west london was the uh, was the focus point yes um and musically speaking that was a great place to be at the time because obviously you had the the hammersmith odeon for the big gigs and you had the clarendon for the smaller slightly smaller gigs and then downstairs at the clarendon um which was uh the which was a a frequent haunt of the early senseless things um and um there were all sorts of other places too there was there were a couple of places in shepherd's bush um um and yeah so oh and if you wanted to go the other way there was the red line in brentford if you wanted to go and see dumpy's rusty nuts and the groundhogs Excellent. on a, on a week, weekly or monthly basis well, this is so all good. It's kind of something premium. Yes. No, it, West was, it was good. Well, you know, compared to <laughs> being brought up in Metfield, you know, we didn't, we had village yeah. in that village hall, which is now being knocked down. But, um, <laughs> and, and if you're very lucky, you might go to a pub to see a blues band doing cover numbers of Johnny B. Mm. So musically, it was. Yes. Well, they, they do, they do that in the, in the village hall now, the new village hall. Yes, you know, you, you get bands in there occasionally when when they can get anyone in, of course. Yes, obviously. So when did you? When yeah. did your sort of musical kind of? What, what was your first say single and first album? No, well, that I got. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. Well, first album, um, first single, I think would have been probably something by the Osmonds. Um, uh, it was kind of hard to kind of really figure that stuff out. Because um, I don't really have a, a, a great memory of it. Most people really remember quite hard what their first single was. My first album uh, was um, that would have been uh, "Remember You're a Womble." Classic. Um, absolutely, and kind of you know, as as was the thing, you, they kind of covered most of the 
uh, of the kind of current genres of music. So there was a kind of glam number on there, um, as well as the kind of novelty, folky kind of number. Yeah, um, and you also know, like Mike Bat. Mike, Mike Bat was very big on his kind of prog rock as well. Actually, there was kind of a few versions. He, he really was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like like uh, like all um masters of the trade i mean no one can say that mike that was an absolutely brilliant songwriter um you know it's a shame he turned into a bit of a brexity type guy uh but that's well, neither here nor did, there i anymore, think he once didn't he once do the uh i don't know what election it was but i think he did the soundtrack to a uh the conservative party and one of their kind of campaigns mm. decades ago so he um yes <laughs> he's slightly um sure. The Wombles. Oh, there you go. Yes, I know. Um, yeah, but but uh, but I mean, in terms of what you might call serious music, um, I su I suppose when I look back and think, you know, what were my first my first records? I think they were the ones I inherited off my my parents, and and they were really records that my parents had that they didn't really listen to, but I discovered them and I did. Um, and the main two for me there were Steel Ice Span, uh, Rogues, which uh, which was kind of my mum's. My mum was the folky, and my dad was the jazzer. You see, right. Um, so I had the Steel Ice Span album, but it was a very electric Steel Ice Span album, and it's got some of the most brilliant fuzz tone guitar sounds on it. And I and that really drew me in. That's one of my earliest musical memories was the kind of fuzz tone that they, they used on um on there's a song called Alison Gross on there, yes, which is the not... most incredible fuzz fuzz guitar on it. Yeah, and uh and on my dad's side, um he had a, the the inevitable copy of In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. Blimey. And once again, side side one, track one, that is one of the heaviest guitar sounds um, in history, you know, uh, 21st century schizoid man. Yeah, so I, the I, fast I, guitar or the the, 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 yeah, the heavily distorted guitar is really what got me at an early age. Yes. Well, I, I kind of bizarrely know that Steel Ice Span album because my brother was a really, he was seven years older than me, but he was very into prog rock, but he did sort of have a few other wow. little moments and yeah. it was a bit of Jethro Tull and there was Steel Ice Span. Mm. And I know we had that single that you couldn't avoid, which was a bit hard going, but there was that compilation, I think it was a collection or compilation, mm. that particular one, and it was quite heavy in places. Um, mm. which was quite an interesting one. And I have to say, it was quite interesting because yeah. Robert Fripp, I remember him talking about sort of, was it, he talked about hairy rock and roll. I remember him, his mm. kind of a quote about hairy, because he know, you know that you've heard it because you've been, and he uses the F word. He was a bit cheeky really, wasn't he, Robert? Mm -hmm. But um, yes, it was, it was kind yeah. of one of those ones. Always has been. A, sem a seminal moment. It, it's all, it, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and so the fuzz guitar thing really kind of um, crystallised for me when punk came along. Um, and I mean, I, my first gig, I was, I was uh, 13, I think, 14, my first proper gig. Um, I went along with my dad to see the Climax Blues Band playing at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park uh, at this fairly young age. Dad, I think, uh, knew the drummer from the Climax Blues Band. So we've got some fantastic seats right down the front. And the support band was the Stranglers. 
Right. So this would have been in 1976, I think, late 76. Um, uh, or no, uh, probably 77, actually, early 77. And uh, yeah, so I would have been 12 or 13. And halfway through, I, I can still see Jean-Jacques, uh, no, not Jean-Jacques, but no, um, oh God. Um, okay, brain, brain fart. Um, Hugh Cornwell. Right. With, with, his, with his little kind of little leather thong tied around his neck, um, kind of doing like pretending to jerk off his head as a penis and then spitting into the air, you know, to simulate, you know, the uh, yes. whatever. Uh, and I didn't understand what that was, of course. I just thought it was really odd and I can still see him doing it now. Uh, it took me years to kind of for, for the, to click what he was doing, um, but even so, I thought you know what, I, I turned to my dad about halfway through the set and I said, "Dad, they're really rude, aren't they? Can we go and get a coke?" So I I don't think my dad was that impressed either. So he was quite he was quite pleased to kind of repair to the bar halfway through the Stranglers set and uh, uh, and uh, get a drink and then come back for the climax blues band. I can't remember at all, if I'm frank. No. Uh, and then six months later, I, six months later, I had uh, I bought Bassus Norvegicus, and I, I've never looked back. That's right, right. Well, that is fascinating mm. because because obviously that was the punk period. But then you were still quite young during that time, and yes, sort of trying to be kind of on the scene. Frankly, seventy-seven for me it was the Silver Jubilee all the way, all the way. Not really, but you know, I wasn't. You know, yes. we weren't. We weren't getting, we weren't getting <laughs> yeah, punk in Metfield. But it was more the eighties no. when the eighties came round, and then suddenly seeing people like Echo mm. and Bunny Men. But the, I suppose the the moment was really the Smiths appearing, and between eighty-three mm. to eighty-seven, you know, it was like suddenly indie tastic, wasn't it? Let's face it. So when did you start playing yes. an instrument? When did your instrumentation start to appear? Um, I, I uh, again about thirteen. It, it kind of coincided with me buying, with, with me getting hold of my first punk records, because there was, um, um, uh, you know, ob obviously the Clash first album, Stranglers, um, and and Susie and the Banshees early singles. And, um, but also for me, the really kind of, uh, there was a, a huge moment where uh, a friend of mine, a school friend of mine invited me over and he was, um, uh, he was of Irish descent. Um, he was uh, second generation uh, Irish. Uh, and he was very politically aware at the age of about 13 he was very and, and Republican and he used to play me Wolf Tones records and then one day he brought out and um, if you don't know who the Wolf Tones were are they're they're a heavily Republican uh, Irish uh, folk band um, but the but then one day he brought out a single um, by a band called Stiff Little Fingers and that was that was it for me because this band was so to my ears they were so aggressive but so tuneful mm. and the words I thought were absolutely brilliant and I'd learned a little about you know uh, about uh, what was happening in Ireland 
but what appealed to me about Stiff Little Fingers was it was it, it was about the kind of common experience of Irish of Northern Irish youth, and the fact that the youth had a, some, a lot in common, and they addressed it all quite obliquely. You know, the kind of divide between the, t- the two communities. They addressed it quite obliquely, but it but there were it was poetic as well. I mean, the songs like Bob Dwyer Love, for example, you know, kind of hands across the hands across the no man's land kind of thing. Yes. Um, so it, it made a huge it made a huge impression on me. And, and I love the fact that things could that's that that rock music could be political and, and yet be kind of you know, but it didn't dilute the power of the music. I absolutely loved it. You know. Yes. So then as the 80s sort of rumbled on, you know, you uh, were, what, what were you... So that was, that was a, no, I was, I was just going to say that the, the kind of end of this Still Little Fingers thing was also I could play their songs. You know, I, I had about six or seven chords and I could play Stiff Little Fingers songs. So, so it was uh, Jake Burns taught me to play guitar. Uh, and I told him that in the local pub in Chiswick a few years later, and he looked at me at the bar, and he looked at me and he went, so? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, mate, I'm trying to hero worship you here, you know. Yes. And then, you know, there's another story about when I spilt wine. I don't know if you remember, but he had, a, he at one point, second album, he had a brilliant new black leather jacket with white, white leather pills and it must have been really new and I met him uh, I met him at the BBC uh, and I tripped over and I spilt red wine down one of the lapels the white lapels of his fabulous leather jacket so yeah that's probably unrelated no <laughs> but yes he yeah was probably, he was probably even wary ever since of meeting anybody that probably scarred him emotionally didn't mm. I know. Just, oh, probably. Yes. But who would have Horrific. a white a white leather jacket? I mean, you know, it was all status quo. Where oh, it looked amazing. <laughs> well, it was a black leather jacket with white lapels. Right. Know. I'm sure there are photos of him wearing it around without yeah. the red stains. Without the red stains. So, when you yeah, left school, hopefully. did you go like to college <laughs> or university, or did you start mm. sort of wanting to? Um, you know, because a lot of people at that stage, I remember the early 80s, you know, unemployment was kind of a thing that one did and, and sort of went on job seekers mm. lands or enterprise land schemes. Did you go that way or were you kind of going to edu- more further education? Well, I, I, uh, I really underperformed in my A-levels. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of scraped two Ds at A-level. Uh, this was down to kind of various issues. Um, uh, non-academic issues but you know I kind of got a bit distracted in my A-level years so barely scraped a couple of D's and so I did go to uni in inverted commas I went to North London Polytechnic which is of course uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn's alma mater yes. um, and I arrived at the same time as a guy called Patrick Harrington um, I don't know if you remember this guy, but basically the North London Poly, Polytechnic in North London was known at the time as being possibly the most left-wing educational establishment in the country. So this guy, um, Harrington, um, turns up uh, and he's from the National Front. So 
and he, he and everybody knew he was from the National Front, and so of course the student body was an absolute uproar. Uh, and uh, and we basically spent the next uh, year or so occupying the refectory and all of the rest of it. Nobody got any work done at all, and it was com you know completely disrupted all of the kind of academic side of life. Uh, but honestly, I wasn't getting on with my degree either, so uh, so I dropped out after. Um, about 18 months or so uh, and I went to work at the BBC um, while kind of casting about for bands. I'd be, I, I was in kind of uh, um, a couple of bands which kind of didn't didn't really go anywhere and um, what one one of which that our, our career basically terminated um, after uh, after our first London gig at the Tunnel Club in Greenwich, when uh, just before we went on stage, our drummer Gary um, stubbed his fag out. We were about to start, and uh, Gary stubbed his fag out in a in a glass ashtray that some idiot from the previous night's heavy metal band had emptied the remains of a flash pot. So mm -hmm. stubs out his fag, massive green flash smoke rolling off the stage. I mean, literally you couldn't see anything at all. And then Gary staggers out from behind his drum kit with, uh, with his hair and face all green and his hair blown back into this kind of fright wig and all of the skin hanging off his right hand from his fingers to his elbow. Uh, and I mean, that was horrific. So obviously someone's calling an ambulance and everything. Meanwhile, I was saying, can we do the gig without Gary? <laughs> <laughs> so I was so psyched and I was so focused on doing the gig. And the answer to that was, of fucking course not, you know, and of course that was the right response, you know, but it was, that was, quite horrific and I don't know if he ended up suing the place he should have sued the place for buggery because that was uh, that was ridiculous um so I'd, I've been in a couple of a uh, couple of little bands but um um but yeah I mean so uh basically what happened with the census things was that my brother knew uh Mark and Cass because they were I think they were at the same college together or something, or, or were in the same circle of friends. And Mark and Cass were kind of looking to, looking to kind of expand the group a bit and maybe get a second guitarist in. Now bear in mind, of course, Cass, Cass I think was 14 or 15 at the time. I was, I was 21. Um, and Mark was only a year or so older than, uh, than Cass was, and Morgan as well. Um, and so I, I met up with them and, and we started playing around and that all kind of, it, it all gelled and it really came together. Yeah. I, I was working, like I said, I was working at the BBC at the time. They offered me promotion, but once the band had started to take off, I thought, no, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so, so I said, no, I can't, because that means you'll want me to actually take responsibility for stuff. And I can't because I might have to go off on tour. You know? Absolutely. Because in those days, you know, we had the great, you know, the the three, you know, weekly papers, which was quite extraordinary, especially when I speak to anybody from America. Yeah. Know? 
my God, you have three weeklies, not mm. just a couple of monthlies, which was fantastic. And then we had the gatekeepers yeah. like John Peel, who, again, you know, a John Peel play was yes. great. Because obviously that 80s period, which I adored and loved, looking, at it, looking back at it now, it was kind of such a good little kind of gig, wasn't it? Because, you know, most cities and towns would mm. have an, an alternative night of some description around the place so people could get there. Sure kind of gigs around here, there and everywhere, the wild club in Norwich uh, mm. and, and such places. And there was <laughs> yeah. the, the Caribbean in which yeah. I believe. And then obviously there was always places. Yes, yeah, we've Princess, played there. The Princess yeah. Charlotte and the Square in Harlow and then the oh. Duchess in oh. you know, all those glamorous places that made Vegas look crap. And they're all, and, all places which, which tug on my heartstrings, you know, which uh, every single one of those I've had an absolutely brilliant gig in. You know, and you, you just named kind of some of the top top ten for me. Um, another one being TJ's in Newport, of course. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of those all of those places were were a solid part of my life for a good twelve years or so. You know, yeah. absolutely brilliant. I know. Well, it was great because, because, you know, it's a bit of a simplistic thing, but I have kind of come across it quite a lot where, you know, at a certain age, a lot of people were just unemployed for that period, you know, played in, you know, a band, got, a, you know, a play on John Peel who'd given them the session and they go, blimey, this is going better mm. than playing at the, the Duke William in Metfield. And, yeah. um, <laughs> blues band uh, yes, and, and then you'd sort of get the album <laughs> yeah. and then you get these kind of random you know dates around the country you get in your van transit van, yeah. you'd go and you'd play in front of 200 people that you never met before so you thought god this could actually yeah go. absolutely so it was you know though it's very simplistic it did seem to sort of cultivate this kind of very organic scene and suddenly you know people were mm. you know became slight promoters even though they were you know would hardly go on to be harvey yeah it's Yes, yeah. Harvey Weinstein. Or Harvey Goldstein. Oh, gosh. Harvey Goldstein. <laughs> <laughs> but that, uh, all... yeah, it, it, except, except I do know someone who did, as it happens. You know, um, my, brother's, my brother's band, the Milk Monitors, had a manager called Scott who, um, who, uh, who used to wear suits at the age of 16 and really looked the part. Um, uh, and I think he modelled himself on on the guy out of Spinal Tap, you know, yes. with the cricket bat. Um, but but he but he really did go on to be Harvey Goldsmith, and he's he's now um, an incredibly successful uh, agent. So uh, so yeah, it does. He r runs one of the biggest touring companies uh, or live event companies in the country. Blimey. So he's he's done exactly that. He's done the whole um, business. Yeah. No, and how did you and, and during that 80s period you know religiously recording the john peel show and listening to all yeah. those bands like the bundu boys and um public enemies and mm -hmm. stuff and yeah. the rock but there was also the indie stuff at that time and there was obviously the smiths and the june brides and the, the go-betweens and and such bands how did how did you sort of fit into that because you weren't quite such a fey band were you no, no, by no means. I mean, we, we regarded ourselves as a punk band. We were a punk band and we've been, you know, I mean, there are some, uh, some interpretations of, uh, of us because of the company we kept with the likes of um, Leatherface and HDQ and stuff. You know, we, we always kind of wanted to fit into that hardcore category, you know, but I don't think we ever really did because we always had this, this kind of chiming pop sensibility that just kind of came out no matter what you tried to do no matter how loud and 
obnoxious we tried to be and we were very loud and we could be quite obnoxious um but the, but the melody always came through you know so so we did find real fellow travelers in the likes of mega city four and snuff yeah again both bands both bands with a very kind of loud attitude but with a very melodic sensibility so so i think i think we were a little bit of a reaction uh to the the bands you've mentioned like the, the june brides and the, and the c86 slightly more fey kind of slightly more jangly guitar sound i think we we really cranked the guitars up but there was still the pop pop melody in there somewhere. yes so i think we were kind of kicking against that because i mean if you think about when we came along uh, we didn't really get motoring until about 1987 and then you know and didn't really gain any recognition until the end of 87 start of 88 uh, when we when we did get that John Peel airplay, and then he invited us in for a session, which may have been 1989. I, I can't be certain of the top of my head, but yeah. you know, I mean, we 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 our, our activity really started in the in the latter latter end of the of the 80s, and it was and yeah, I think you know that that kind of that kind of thing, um, the the kind of gentler, janglier kind of intelligentsia poetry quoting kind of side of things was wasn't really us we were much more i mean you know i mean um cass our drummer modeled himself on keith moon of course and and you've heard about my love of the kind of big brash guitars yeah so that's really that's really kind of where our thing was and morgan i mean morgan's dad used to play with the who you know and worked with the who a lot and so so again there's that connection and, and Morgan just really always wanted the end whistle massive bass sound so yes. uh, and, he, and he's definitely he's kind of created that definitively now you know with dear old news but interestingly enough because because 87 was not playing of... bass then. pardon uh, he doesn't play bass with Muse he did briefly oh. when their bass player when their bass player broke his wrist and that's how we met them and how he got into them okay um, um but uh but no he kind of does everything else he does keyboards and a bit of extra guitar rhythm guitar and and percussion and stuff like that but he's the fourth muse guy on stage yes. uh, yeah. i remember seeing the the rumors of fleetwood mac at the theater royal norwich once and they had a guy who <laughs> who didn't look like any of the other members but he was an old chap but he did all the little bits that made it sound fantastic actually he looked like a little yes wrinkled yeah. weasel in the background that's a bit <laughs> but you know but he knew he knew how to play those 60s songs on Fleet, fleetwood mac quite well so um he had the licks yes Pete no, Green sorted out because 87 was kind of just jump into 87 was kind mm. of one of those kind of years where that's things right. changed the smiths finished didn't they which was kind of an anisarebless moment really let's face it ecstasy came in the music scene had changed quite a lot so suddenly you've got the dance world that was you know the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream, Stone Roses. And then in America, you had the Seattle scene that had been bubbling away. You know, we'd had Sonic Youth and the Butthole mm. Black, but then suddenly... You you're, 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 get, you're getting on to the early 90s now. And then we, we, we really? truck in. I mean, so, I, did you, so did you sort of think, because we love putting things into little kind of boxes, don't we? And, and so they, there was that mm. kind of North London scene, which had My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Throne, you know, and the Faith Healers. Yes. Um, 
and so there was all that kind of it wasn't shoegazing it was just kind the of camden the camden lurch, the lurch scene yeah we we, whatever, we whatever you wanted to call it we we imagined everyone just lived in the same house and just shared you know muesli with each mm. other you probably and, and some of them did did they <laughs> <laughs> some of them did yeah i mean obviously we uh silverfish we thought were absolutely brilliant i loved silverfish and we got on you know was pretty good mates with chris and fuzz and leslie um uh you know and they were they were terrific terrific fun really lovely and and you know i, I think at least a couple of them lived together you know there was a lot of that going on i mean you know when you're when you're not earning a lot and you know uh, uh, you share resources yes uh, and so there was a lot of that going on and you know and you know flats in camden were still kind of affordable at the time not that i was there but you know i spent a lot of my time there an awful lot of my time there but obviously um, so <clears throat> sorry, I was but, but that was a that no, that was a certain scene but it wasn't our scene you know um our scene was you know if you want if you want to define it it was it was downstairs at the clarendon fulham greyhound um you know places places like that west london um if we're talking about hometown gigs um it was us mega city for snuff and perfect days and uh, who were from ipswich um and oh so, you know so many other other bands who weren't weren't in the inverted commas doing as well as we as we were but you know that was our fraggle scene yes you know that's what steve, steve lamac i think it was or or maybe simon williams came up with fraggle rock to kind of describe us because we didn't fit with the the kind of uh, the pre-existing indie scene we were something new but then we weren't uh, again we weren't in that kind of band of uh, uh, that kind of group of bands who took themselves rather more seriously you know kind of the um the my bloody valentines of this world what about um, itself or the, or, uh Grebo. See, they were Grebo, which was different. Um, Pop released itself and Gay Bikers uh, on Acid. They, that, that was Owen oh, Crazyhead. That, that again, that was a, a scene which slightly predated um, senseless things, but in a way, kind of paved the paved the way. Uh, opened a few doors for us, I think, and we shared quite a, a lot of fans with them, and the Wonder Stuff, early Wonder Stuff as well. Yeah. And we kind of, you know, we shared a lot of fans with them. There were a lot of stripy tights around, and day glow clothes, um, and combined with the kind of crusty look and feel, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And and the traveller thing was starting to take off as well. So that fitted in very nicely with our kind of transophobia. Um, lifestyle, which was basically doing up to about 300 gigs a year. Um, I kid you not, it, it was just non-stop playing yes. because you could, because the smaller venues were there and they would take you on like the Adelphi in Hull, you know, uh, or the Riverside in Newcastle, you know, and we had friends in every town and they mm. would, they put us, they put us up, they'd feed us, you know, and it was a very much a kind of collective effort. And so that was the scene. That was the scene we had. It was, so it was transit vans, t-shirts, um, and 
that kind of non-exploitative camaraderie that you had between the artists and the band. We, we completely hated the whole rock star shtick. You know, it was, it was, we're doing this together. That was the whole kind of vibe of it. So, so it was, it was fantastic. I loved it at the yes. time, you know, and, and, and you could quite easily survive by doing it. Yes, well, I think that's the key to that. You could be a, in a band 24-7 and almost, you know, break even, but you didn't have to have a day job or a night job either, which was quite interesting. Yeah, but it, it was, yes, because there was a particular fan, wasn't there? I suppose it is the 16 to 18-year-old when they have that moment where, mm. A, they're, they're not just buying a single, but they're going out and they're, they're finding that fan who are releasing that first single, that first couple of album, or that first album, not, not the couple, but, you know, that, that, that period. And I would imagine you must have been a big hit in the student the first year students who had just gone to university must have lapped up. The yes, absolutely. You must have been that because there was um, that. Yes, look. Uh, and I'm just glad you didn't have a degree. Yeah, because there was the levelers, memory. wasn't there? There was the levelers that came along as well, and that kind of brought together that crusty, you know, dreadlocky look. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. With them in New Model Army in particular, um, they, they kind of. Uh, they, they were the kind of generation after um, uh, PWEI and GBOA, and then the Levelers kind of came along and and, and really crystallised it a bit more. And that that was that was really the kind of traveller thing, again. Um, um, but uh, no, I have a. I went to. Um, I went to. Oh gosh, what's it called? Levelers Levelers have their own festival, and I can't remember what it's called now. Down on the side. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful days, beautiful days. Right. Uh, D A Z E, and uh, and uh, I went there with uh, my other half a few years ago, and uh, got up on the on the morning of the final day, which is when the levels do their headline, and was stumbling arena trying to find very dehydrated, horribly hungover, trying to find some breakfast, which was almost bound to be vegan, and uh, and. For my sins, the levelers started doing their didgeridoo sound check at just that moment, and it was so loud. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the last thing I wanted to hear at the time. Yes. But there you go. I know that was yeah. a bit of a. So yeah, the, but uh, but also, I mean, um, a bit further down the line, uh, with Three Colors Red in my later band, uh, we toured with. Uh, or was it? Was it with them? Oh gosh, you know, I can't remember that. My memory is getting terrible these days. Um, but um, anyway, one of the bands I was in, and I, I think it was, I think it was Census Things actually. Uh, we, we toured the, yes, it must have been. We toured the, um, the, the former East Germany with, uh, with New Model Army. Right. And that, that was quite an experience, I've got to say. I mean, particularly the, uh, um, the nightly football match between in the car park, usually in the dark, because this was East Germany and the infrastructure was terrible, um, and be between the bands and the audience. And of course, New Model Army and all of their crew, they all wore clogs with, with metal studs in them. So you, you could just, you'd just see these sparks coming off the cobbles in the dark, left, right and centre from these guys, big, early 
guys with long hair running about. Yes, going to the army and navy stores for your big boots. Yes, absolutely. Any kit we, bags. Yeah. Yes, nice cliche there. So look, you did, I mean, just briefly, too much kissing is the sort of, you know, your stairway to heaven, isn't it really? Did that come together yeah. quite well? It's it you mean writing the song. Pardon? Oh, you froze. Do you mean writing the song? Yeah, just it's that kind of yes, moment. I mean, it, it just yes, I know it just slightly like, froze. But it was the it was one of those ones which you just think, oh, that's free bird, that's stairway to heaven. That is how soon is now. It it just kind of works mm -hmm. so perfectly, doesn't it? Did it you, is, it's the one with like the there was magic it's in the, the air the when riff, that, isn't it? Yes. Did it come together well or easily? Well, all of our songs did, I think. Mark was Mark was a, a great songwriter in terms of the fact that he would he would just basically organize the chord sequence. Um, you know, he'd write he'd write and arrange a chord sequence and a melody and would have some lyrics not necessarily fully developed. Um, but but when we weren't playing, we were rehearsing. And what we used to do was we used to introduce new songs that we'd written the day before into the set all the time because we were playing so frequently. So, mm -hmm. and he was incredibly prolific. So, <clears throat> so we would very frequently have two or three new songs put into the set. Um, and I don't remember, I, I don't recall exactly the sessions when, when that song was happening, but uh, but like all of our songs, they came together really easily because then it would be up to me to write a riff sometimes. I mean, Mark would write the riff uh, some of the time as well, you know, um, and I suspect that this, uh, that this one might have been Mark's riff. I don't remember. Um, but um, I think it probably would have been because it was very much a, a standout feature of the song. Um, so, uh, so that would just have been a case of uh, bish bash bosh. It probably would have taken us about an hour, an hour and a half maximum to knock it together because we'd got so good at working together. Yeah, you know, we knew each other so well that that we and we'd work at a kind of blistering pace, just kind of going and going and going and repeating the song over and over and over until it kind of morphed into something that we can work with. Um, but something like that, I, almost definitely, we would, it would have been written pretty much from start to finish um, in, in under a couple of hours at most, probably less. Blind. So, uh, and then we would have gone on to the next one, you know, uh, which would have been the B-side or which would have ended up being the B-side or definitely on the same record. Yes. But, you know, for, for, for every for every 12 songs that ended up on a on a on a 24 minute LP, there would have been another 14 or so which we didn't record. Yes. You know, yes. We, we definitely didn't record every song we wrote. Um, so, no, it would have come across. It would have come along very easily. But like all of our songs, uh, the guitar solo, which which for me is, I'm really really pleased with the guitar solo on that, um, on that song because it's just perfect. It, it, you know, I'm so proud of it. It works all the way through, um, and uh, and yeah. So that was uh, and 
there's a nice little kind of comeback on that story, which is a few years ago, um, someone just kind of tipped me off that there was an American band who were covering Too Much Kissing. Uh, and it's a band called Beach Slang. Have you heard of Beach Slang? No, Beach Slang. Oh, you must find Beach Slang. Um, and um, you'll definitely find um, video evidence of them covering Too Much Kissing. In fact, you'll see evidence of us doing a fairly shonky uh, of me and Cass and Mark joining Beach Slang at Dingwalls a few years ago for a cover of Too Much Kissing. <laughs> Um, and it turns out that the singer, the singer-songwriter of Beach Slang, um, is a uh, is a massive Sense of Things fan, and I and that that intrigued me. So I listened to the first album, and it absolutely blew me away. Uh, the vocals are a little bit um, psychedelic furs, but a very kind of tough. You know, it, it's it's fraggle. It's basically, you know, it's it's my music it's my kind of music right. so so it kind of slotted right in and and i as soon as i found out about them and got into the first album i, I found out they were playing in london about a week later so i went along with a handful of sensitive things goodies a few a few um too much kissing represses and the rest of it and they played it and they got me up on stage and it was the beginning of a beautiful french and i ended up taking my daughter to, to see them at Reading Festival. And we did that whole shtick again, you know, and it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. But no, be, be, if you like sensitive things, if you like sensitive things, you'll probably love Beach Slang. Yes, well, absolutely. Super, superb band. Yeah, First two it? albums only, though. Yeah, but um, it's interesting how sort of these bands, well, bands like yourself and these 80s bands are sort of still getting sort of discovered. And I could imagine being a 16 year old enjoying those kind of moments of thinking you've discovered this you know, very obscure band that no one else has and feeling very excited and feeling disappointed if anybody else liked them. So I would imagine when yes. they, hear, they hear your greatest hits, they must think, Jesus Christ, no one's heard of this. I've discovered a new band. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, one of my current bandmates likes to remind me that he, he stopped following senseless things. He was one of our biggest fans in the early days. But um, he stopped following us when we signed to signed to Epic. Yeah, well, like, Jesus, that would <laughs> when we sold out. We sold out. I mean, you know? <laughs> well, we remember when Sonic Youth left SST Records, and uh, yeah, the, and they, the, you know, this signed huge, Geffen, it, was, it? it was almost on the front page, wasn't it? Breakfast Time TV. They're signed mm. to a major. What's that? What does that mean about music? Hold that thought. Mm. I know, Jesus. We we worried about. Oh, it means you get paid. It means you get paid for it. <laughs> you know? or at so, least you do initially and then you never make any money from your music ever again for your whole life you know i know that's just how it all works isn't it i know it's quite revealing actually how how, how so little money there is for the band actually but um so then yeah. as as we got towards the mid the mid 90s when brit pop started to explode and suddenly you know the wonder stuff were on top of the pops and everybody well else. can i just can i just Sorry, just rewind you a few years. Yes. 1992, okay? Uh, not, or not, 1991, actually. The year punk rock broke, to kind of quote the, uh, to quote the, the documentary, the US documentary, which was all about Sonic Youth and the grunge thing. Um, because as far as American music goes, um, we, uh, Census Things have been absolutely, 
them a long time and we modeled ourselves on bands like descendants and all and um you know uh meat puppets and uh all that kind of stuff and we had the same publicist as nirvana so i think it was 91 when uh, about six months or well no a couple of months before nevermind came out um our our, our publicist uh slipped us cassette copies copies of nevermind which nobody else really in this country, apart from his clients, had heard. So, you know, we listened to this utterly, you know, life-changing album, and knowing it was going to be absolutely huge, not quite understanding the fact that it would mean the death of our band, because, because that's what grunge did. It killed a whole bunch of bands in our position because all of a sudden that's all everybody or all anybody wanted it was american stuff you know so uh, we want grunge and we weren't quite grunge even though we were trying our best to be and we had been for years actually you know we we'd been kind of taking these influences and kind of reinterpreting them through our our stuff for 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 a while you know uh, you know, our, um, our Fugazi collections were complete, you know, <laughs> dag nasty. We listened to all of this stuff and we went, this is the best thing ever. We need to be more like squirrel bait, you know, yes. or whatever. So, so the, the kind of irony of that, of basically Nirvana coming along and, and Mudhoney and all the rest of it, um, because Nirvana had been coming over and playing and we'd been going to see them and so had Hull and so had Mudhoney and so had Tad and, you know, all of those, uh, that whole kind of Seattle scene, they were all coming over and they were playing and they were having more success in London than they were having in, in, in their hometowns kind of thing because we took to them, the Brits took to them brilliantly. But, but once Nirvana really took, took off, that was it. It was like it was downhill for us from there on. But you can really hear it in the later stuff. Uh, for example, I mean, our our commercial suicide single, Homophobic Household, which which you know, um, which I actually get a writing credit on because I wrote the riff and the chord sequence. And again, I'm incredibly proud of that. But you can you can really tell. That is, that's the, that's the really a quite successful departure from the more melodic side of things into the very, very angry. Um, and, you know, the, the title, the shocking title is kind of deliberate and we weren't going to turn that down for the record company. And we insisted, we insisted that it was put out, um, despite the fact that we knew that it wouldn't get any radio play because it's called homophobic arsehole. Yeah. Yes. Um, but we were a political band and we wanted to make a point. You know, we liked being, we liked making political points. Um, not party political, but, but per, in terms of personal politics. Um, same era, Primary Instinct by Census Things is a very political song you know, and it's about racial unity, um, and explicitly so, <coughs> and against racism. Um, 
homophobic arsenal. It's very much about um, about gay rights and about freedom to be who you are. You know, um, a bit ahead of its time, really. Yes, absolutely. Um, but also absolute commercial suicide. And you can understand it. Why the hell would a record company put money behind something when we were basically telling them to go fuck themselves, you know? <laughs> and we were kind of doing that anyway. We got really sick and tired of Sony by then. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, but that, but that also, that really is the kind of culmination of our grunge influence. Yes, well, it was, a, yeah, it was quite interesting. Mm. I was, it's funny because I was watching Daryl Nirvana at the, the Reading Rock Festival and it was interesting because I did an interview when, when they came over with Tad supporting them at Norwich Arts Centre. I interviewed them, which was yeah. at the time, it was like, do you want to interview the support band? It's like, well, yeah, I quite like Bleach. Yeah. Actually, I thought well, Bleach was a great album. And yeah. um, he did mention Boston and the Boston and that famous song. And when, he's, when you watch them at the Reading Rock, he starts with that riff that is the Boston, you know, the big yes. single that sails. And then he goes into Teen Spirit and you think, God, yeah, that's where his influences also goes, is, is those kind of moments. Yes. And if you watch that yeah. moment, you just think, oh, yes, I know this song, you know, and then it's like, oh, no, now it's Teen Spirit. But mm. it's like, yes, he, he's kind of done a nice little twist on that, really. <laughs> Bit of Tom Schultz first, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, I'm sure he Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, he was, he, was a, he was a teenager in that era in the States and that's what, that's what they listened to, you know, they were listening to that and Rush and... All the rest of it. Yes, Frampton um, Nichols yes. Live. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. You know, because well, we all did. It was ubiquitous, wasn't it? It was absolutely but essential. Speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were probably listening to Steely Eyes. <coughs> Steely, uh, Steely, Steely Eyes. Steely Eyes. Oh, Steely Dan. Well, you're going to mention Steely Dan as well. But uh, that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. That's uh, Katie Lied was a classic album. Mm. But, um, did you? Did, so when it came to the mid '90s, the John Major years, did you all feel like you just had enough by the end? Um, uh, yes, I guess so. I, I think you know the trajectory of the band was clear. It was kind of it had gone up and it was now going down. I think just the idea. I, it was. It, uh, the, the kind of restrictions of being on Sony um, were really kind of wearing on us. I think we were all incredibly tired. We've been playing nonstop for years. And I think, I think, uh, I think we just thought things had run their course, you know, and it was, I think we went to Japan uh, and Mark didn't come back and we couldn't fulfill a couple of gigs that we had committed ourselves to. And I think that was, I think we just all knew, you know, yes. that it was time to move on. So, so basically that's what we did. I mean, um, you know, just harking back slightly to 1992, because you mentioned Britpop coming along. Mm -hmm. and, and we had toured America with Blur in 1992. Um, and... That was very nearly disastrous. Every minute, whereas we had the absolute time of our lives because we were playing to we were playing to um, uh, Anglo Anglophile audiences around the states, and we were there for two and a half months. You know, actually, kind of circumnavigating the USA, 
which was brilliant anyway, in a bus as a gang. Um, and uh, and Blur were having this horrific time, whereas we were off stage by 9.30 every night, having a fabulous time, you know, partying. They didn't have time to party after they'd finished their set. Um, and I just remember Graham in, the, in our hotel room one night just crying, basically, poor guy, and saying, I want my mum. And we were going, you're a rock band on tour in the USA, a British rock band. They all love you. What the hell's wrong with you? And we picked him up and we threw him in a swimming pool <laughs> to try and kind of shock him out of this yes, maze. slap him about. And yeah. then, oh, thank God he didn't meet Lemmy in the corridor because he would have just flattened but, him. But, but no, absolutely. But, but, but then again, I think it was the making of him <clears throat> in a way because, uh, or the making of Blur actually, because they came back and then they decided to totally change their approach and they came up with Park Life. You know, yeah. So I think it was. I think it was a life lesson for them, and I hope we played some small part. You would have. You would have done. But then you, you <laughs> were part of Britpop with the senseless things. But you came back with Three Colours Red, which was. Um, were you a Juliet Binoche fan? No, uh, no. We we got the name basically because we we had the band, we had the songs, um, we had the look, we had a manager, we had the demos, but we didn't have a name. So basically, we had we had a day to sort out a name for the band, uh, which would kind of not really say anything. So we just took a, stuck a pin in Time Out, the listings magazine, and the rest is history. Nice. You know? I didn't. I did. I only got. Uh, I, it just it it, it, it seemed to fit because it didn't really say anything, you know, uh, and it wasn't overly aggressive so it didn't kind of put us in a box and, and I just I quite like the fact that you didn't know on the face of it what a band called Three Colours Red was going to sound like. No this is true actually. And how did you um, find a little opportunity to kind of forge your own path and I quite liked it. Yes and you Sorry, signed for again. Creation Records which is obviously quite different to Sony. Uh, except they became a subsidiary of Sony about two years after that. <laughs> yes, this is true. Uh, uh, so, well, not really. I mean, hmm. yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, creation seemed to be, a, 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 a kind, again, a kind of brilliant way to go because we were, at the, at the end of the day, we were a hard rock band, you know, um, Again, fairly melodic, but again, also fairly aggressive on the musical side. Um, and I know Alan McGee was just looking for something to kind of go a little bit more in that direction. Um, and I think we really fitted the bill for him. I mean, he was, he waxed lyrical about the band and, um, you know, he called us the most, I think something like the most important band since the Sex Pistols. Right. Which is clearly, which is clearly. No pressure. Rubbish rubbish absolute rubbish of course we won't but you know it's nice to, nice to see it on the wrong end of a few pints and um and you know the the definitive kind of uh, the definitive way of looking at that quote is is to read it in john niven's novel um kill your friends right where it is quote where it is quoted it, each of the chapters starts with 
him quoting something utterly ridiculous from the music industry uh, <laughs> at that time. It's set in the music industry and it is, you know, yes, it's exaggerated, but not by much. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, but yes, it's, but the book is even better. It's, mm. and it's, it's horrific, but that's how ridiculous the, the music industry was at the time. No. So it was, I think creation was a good fit for us because again, it, it kind of, it, that lent itself to good artwork and good promotion in, in a very cool way, you know, uh, and, and allowed us a little extra coolness that we may not have had otherwise. So yes. I was very pleased to be on, I was very pleased to be on creation and the people that we worked with, they were lovely. So, so yeah. just briefly then, because you, you know, this takes you up to the millennium. Then what happens with, you know, when you have to sort of think, right, the rest of my life? Yes, well, I mean, uh, Three Colors Red lasted, or at least in its in it, uh, initial incarnation with me in it, lasted until 1999. Um, uh, that, was a, that was a nice ride, actually, because um, uh, I, I, again, absolutely adored the music. The fans were fantastic. Uh, it was a bit more of a hard rock audience than Sensor Sings had been. Um, we did so many fantastic gigs and it was, you know, it was a really, really good time. Two really good albums, I think. I'm so proud of them. Um, uh, but that was really, uh, that was a case of personalities really clashing to the point where, where it was intolerable being in the same space right and artistically as well the, the two main songwriters pete and chris i think had just had just kind of pulled in different directions to the extent where there wasn't any crossover anymore and i think pete in particular was incredibly frustrated um so it, it imploded uh, um and again it, it just wasn't wasn't doable i think if we'd have managed to stay together and we'd done have done another album I think we may well have broken through that that barrier mm -hmm. and become so become something properly big you know but it just wasn't to be yes um yeah and at that point after 12 years of being a professional musician I, I was kind of tired you know and I just needed a break from the whole thing so I went off and I found myself a proper job and that was it. Well, not quite. And that, and that was it. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. So, so I did. I did that. I got into. I became a um, a press officer uh, initially for um, Help the Aged, the older people's charity, um, and then uh, and then I moved to Cornwall, where I basically did pretty much the same kind of work. But, um, but that's what I got into Morris dancing. Um, here we go. This is the folk connection. Oh, this is, this yes. is having a connection with folk music and having loved folk music all my life. Yes. You know, even while I was in all of these bands playing Fraggle Rock or, or Brit Rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, for my own listening, listening pleasure, I've got incredibly Catholic tastes. I love classical music. I love electronic music. I love folk music. Um, 
so um uh, and i love death metal you know yes uh, but, but a, a bit really more death, a, bit, a bit of uh, thrash metal napalm death never yes but never been a fan of the smiths i'm afraid oh to say that's fair enough or Isn't the it? june brides i mean th this is why i was saying earlier that our music was actually a bit of a kickback against it you know the the jangly uh, the jangly Sensitive. The sensitive thing. Sensitive, sensitive stuff. You can you can be sensitive, but without being, without being Morrissey about it. You know? No. Or the June Brides, I should say. But um, but you, <laughs> you embrace the the um, yeah Morris dancing, which has now become very popular. Yes. Well, I guess it has. Yeah, I mean, there's well, if a, you there's if you um, in, there's a so, side in Brixton, you know. Well, I know that Hellsworth, which isn't a million miles, well, it's seven miles from, mm. used to have. Up until this year, they the day of Morris dancing from all these places, from all these different troops from all over the country. So um, it was the Woodstock I, of Morris. I didn't know that. Oh my God! If you go wow. go and look Wonderful. at Hellsworth, I mean, they'll probably try and do it again. Oh, I don't know. It's going to be terrific, difficult at the moment. But they they would literally it would be like the Woodstock of Morris dancing in Hellsworth. Wonderful. Yeah. So it's um it's become quite a thing again actually. Hmm. Well, it it has. Um... There's been more, a little bit more attention paid to it over the last few years. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just kind of basically joined a side on a whim, really. And, and mostly because uh, I think, I think um, my then partner and I had been out to, we, we just happened across a bunch of Morris dancers doing a thing um, outside a pub somewhere in Cornwall. And I was quite taken with it. I mean, and these were, these were, this is a Border Morris side. And Border Morris, they basically wouldn't look out of place at, at a leveler's gig, you know, because there are tattered jackets, the, the faces are painted, they wear top hats. They tend to dress in black um, with big boots on. And they're quite aggressive with the old sticks. Um, uh, and they're mixed sides as well, they're men and women. So, you know, there, there's not that kind of anachronistic thing of, of being it being an all-male hobby. Yes. Uh, and so, and so, but it turned out <coughs> that one of one of our, um, our uh, one of the people in the village we were living at the time turns out to be the current squire of the local Morris dancing side. Yes. Uh, and they were they were a, a ring side, what you call a ring side, which is Cotswold Morris, which is the more traditional, it's all male in the dancing at least. Uh, they were a bit controversial because they had a couple of female musicians, um, which was kind of a bit frowned on by the Morris ring, but but they were allowed to get away with it because they were Cornish, I think. Um, <laughs> and so and so, but but the first time I went out with them, I took my guitar along, and it wasn't so much the actual dancing itself, although that got its claws into me later on. But the but the the afters singing in the pub afterwards, you know, once you'd finished your second set of dancing for the night, it was into the pub, and these guys had the most brilliant repertoire. They would be playing country music, old Victorian music hall songs, old folk songs, new you know new folk songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a, and a rock and roll medley to finish the night off, and it was brilliantly entertaining. And they've got some cracking singers in there, and people like Vic Leg. Who, if you ask in the folk the folk music scene in in Cornwall, you you mentioned Vic Leg, and he's he's a Cornish gypsy 
extraction. And he's, he's very well known around, around those parts and a, and a very well known and well recognized uh, folk singer with mm. a huge repertoire. And it was just uh, brilliant fun. And, you know, we, we do a great version of Spirit in the Sky, you know. And I, I just had an absolute blast. And yeah. that's how I got my kicks on an acoustic guitar and mandolin and an octave mandolin uh, for the next few years. Fantastic. And then, yeah, and I didn't pick up an electric guitar again, really, until I came back to London. Right. So you're so, back in you're back in London. Yes. Yeah, right. Back in and, London. and have been have been since about two thousand and seven. Right. So is that um, so on the music front? Then are you just kind of doodling a bit and just kind of enjoying various little moments that happen? No, I've got. I've have had two bands since I've been back from. Uh, from Cornwall. Um, I was in a band called The Faction for a while. We, we built ourselves a socialist R&B. Mm -hmm. um, R&B in the Dr. Feelgood sense rather than the Beyonce sense. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it was that kind of that, that kind of thing, quite bluesy, but with a real driving beat, uh, uh, but with lyrics by Marx and Engels, basically. Um, and the culmination of that band's career was was playing at uh, at the culmination Jeremy Corbyn's uh, leadership campaign at Islington Town Hall, which was great. And the I think it was the Spectator came along and reviewed the gig <laughs> in exactly the way you might imagine nice. the Spectator to review a socialist R and B band. They would have loved it. Uh, but it, it. I mean, it was there was a little bit of the tongue in the cheek, and the, and it was very. They were, we I think we were a very amusing band to watch. Yes, yeah. and it was quite funny. You know, we'd call each other splitters on stage and all the rest of it. It was a lot of fun. Excellent. But again, that came to a bit of an end, and I'm now back in another band, um, with a couple of my compadres. In fact, with three of my compadres. Uh, from the faction, uh, although we're not really supposed to acknowledge that because we have a kind of, uh, I call it fictional backstory. Uh, it's not so much fictional as a work of genius. <laughs> and, and the Charlemagnes, we are basically a reincarnation of a late 60s American New Jersey garage punk band. Uh, you can imagine the Charlemagnes is exactly the kind of name that would have been appropriate for a band yes. like that. So that's okay. that's the thing. But there are none of the original members left. Um, the entire bio of the band is on the back of our new single, which is now uh, which is out now, and I've got to say is pretty cracking. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and I absolutely love that, but haven't been able to do it for a year. So we're, no. I'm just itching, itching to play again. Absolutely. So look, you know, like and we play regular gigs. We play regular gigs, usually downstairs at the Hope and Anchor in Islington, that kind of punk stalwart pub. Yes. Uh, and we put, we put the gigs on, we share the money equally between the bands and we put our friends on and we have a fabulous time and we have no responsibilities, no ambition. You know, but we play for the pleasure of it, and that's exactly how it should be. Yes, absolutely. So, look, just last question then: if you could have said something yeah. to an eighteen-year-old self, then starting out in that interest in the murky world that is rock and roll or indie pop, um, 
was there, would there be a few things that you would have just said, look, yeah, I wish I'd known that or I wish I'd done that? Yeah. Yeah. Number one, for God's sake, write some fucking songs. Because if you don't, you'll never earn any money from this. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've got maybe three songs that I've that I can I can hand on heart say I wrote that. I wasn't a writer. I was basically a hired gun. I was the guy who, but you know, every single guitar solo I played, that's me. That's me writing it. Yeah. Um, and I think more credit needs to be given to musicians who actually, uh, who actually kind of contribute a lot to the sound and the feel and the overall existence of the song. Um, so yeah, it would be pay a bit more attention to things like publishing and PRS and royalties and all of the rest of it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, um, otherwise, not really, you know, because, because uh, I, I think, you know, I, I can't tell myself to enjoy it while it was happening because I did. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, I think that would pretty much be it. Sorry to be so dull. No, no, <coughs> that's absolutely. Most people actually interestingly. Oh, and yeah, the the other the other thing would be don't go near Jake Burns's leather jacket. Whatever. Yeah, I know that's a tricky one, isn't it? And then years later, go up and say something complimentary to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and have it thrown back in your face. Thanks, Jake. No, never mind. Oh, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you, Ben. This has been incredible and a bit sort of. It's been a pleasure. It's been a bit spooky in the Metfield connection. There you go. It really has. That was very odd, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll look forward to hearing this. Um, I hope you're going to chuck a few tracks in to intersperse the, 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 the rubbish I've been talking The chat. No, people love the chat, I tell you. They do love oh, the chat. Oh, good. I'm glad That's... they love the chat. Anyway, look, well, this is the end of the new year. So have a good good one, whatever. And um, hopefully next year. Yeah, no problem. Be... And if you... And it... Oh, yeah, well, yeah, hopefully it will be a better year next year. Uh, if you need me to send you um, some uh, some uh, Charlemagne's tracks. Yes, I'd be curious to hear the Charlemagne's. That would be very curious. Anyway, look, I better go. Cool. But thanks a lot. Take care. Lovely to talk to you, David. Take care. Bye. There you go. Oh dear, sorry, I just blew that one, didn't I? Anyway, um, sometimes I edit the ends out, but then I like to keep them in because it always sounds very sort of... I'm terribly British English, aren't I? Fumbling away, not knowing how to say goodbye. I enjoy listening to those moments. Oh, anyway, that's the end of the interview. That's me, David Eastall, in conversation with Ben Hardin, one-time member of The Senseless Things. Also, Three Colours Red, indeed. And now with various other bands. So that's it. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me, God knows why, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This is the C86 show. You can find it. Check it out. It's fascinating. Also, all these interviews have been archived and they're on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Anyway, it's 2021. It's going to get better. I'm channeling new labour. OK, bye. <laughs>